you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the second chapter of the New Testament book of Romans, page 796 in our church Bibles. Romans chapter 2, page 796. If, if, you knew or if you're new or you're visiting, we've been working through Romans verse by verse, so this morning we're going to work through the first, Lord willing, the first 11 verses of chapter 2. Just by way of reminder, in verse 18, Paul had that classic line, the righteous will live by faith. Verses 18 to the end of the chapter, verse 32, he shows us humanity's unrighteousness, and then he picks up verse 1, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? But because of your stubbornness, and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. And that word favoritism means God doesn't look at the face. That's a literal rendering of it. We understand that because we show favoritism because we look at people's face and, you know. So I don't look at the face. This is God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the songs that we sang. Thank you that they're all true. And in light of what is before us this morning, we remind ourselves, Jesus, your son, said, apart from him, we can do nothing, that our flesh counts for nothing. And I believe that. I experientially believe that. Therefore, Father, please, for Jesus' sake, give us aid. Give me mercy as you magnify your name and your word in this room. Amen. Now, if you have a worship folder. Right on the back, you'll see there's two points, and we're going to get right to it. Religion useless, gospel beautiful. So what began in chapter 1 continues on in chapter 2. This whole letter is Paul's magnum opus, his, his great work in explaining the one gospel. His whole life was set aside for this message, just as Jesus' whole life was set aside that Paul and we ourselves would have this message and this message would have life to it, indeed eternal life. And if you had to boil down this message 
in one sentence, it might be something like, it is impossible for anyone to be guiltless unless they're justified by faith in Christ. If you like, the only way any person, Jew or Gentile, moral or religious, the only way anyone can escape God's right judgment on sin, can live in that truth, enjoy his provision, fashioning a life in that love, see the world through that lens, is faith in Christ. Faith in his victory over sin and death on the cross. And what is so profound about the gospel is, if you like, this alien righteousness, this Christ righteousness, becomes our righteousness, and all that he has becomes ours. So a long time ago, a gentleman named David Brenner, he was an American missionary to the Native American. Before he came to Christ, he was super religious. Listen to his own words. When I had been fasting, praying, obeying. I thought I was aiming at the glory of God, but I was doing it all for my own glory to feel I was worthy. It was really all for me. My deeds were nothing more than an exercise in self-worship. I was actually trying to avoid God as Savior and to be my own Savior, not worshiping God, but using God in my works. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, One day as I was passing through a field, suddenly I I thought of a sentence. Your righteousness is in heaven. And with the eyes of faith, I saw Christ sitting at God's right hand and suddenly realized, there is my righteousness. Wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God would not say, where is your righteousness? For it was right before him. I saw that my good frame of heart could not make my righteousness better, nor... (laughs) And I praise God for this. A bad frame of heart make my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now my chains fell off indeed. I felt delivered from slavery to guilt and fears. I went home rejoicing for the love and the grace of God. Now I could look for myself to him. And I realized that all those weak character qualities in my heart were like the pennies that rich men carry in their pocket when their gold is safe under lock and key. Christ is my treasure. Christ is my righteousness. Christ is my wisdom. Christ my holiness. And Christ is my salvation. And this is, this is sweet liberation. And, and Paul's tenaciousness here in Romans, he's insisting on faith alone. Faith alone, the only message which liberates, which makes human beings flourish. So, you know, the gospel isn't a little, you know, a little go juice to get you through the day. Or, or to help us do a little better, or to help us, you know, secure the future. We know a whole new identity. It's Christ. We know assurance. We, knew, we know relief from guilt. We know sweet intimacy with our almighty Father who cares deeply for us, makes promises, keeps those promises, and loves us, and doesn't turn on us, and, and we keep framing our life in that truth. And I want you to forget the way this message comes to us in Romans 2 and 1 and 2 in the whole book. It's all from God, which means how it comes again in the letter is from God. And God knows religion is dangerous. 
God knows the moral moralist is a danger to themselves and a danger to others. And the Bible thumper who uses the Bible to thump the people on the head, dangerous. And so that kind of person, you know, can look off, admittedly, at least externally, like the Pharisees, high, holy, pious, zealous. However, beyond the fact that they do not understand the right use of God's law, and Lord willing, we're going to get to that next Sunday. Which, if you think about it, that's part of the reason why Paul wrote 1 Timothy. He said, Timothy, you're going to confront these people who do not know how to use God's law properly. They misuse it. Which is why, in the same letter, he can tell them, tell them about the law, and he can say about himself, I am the worst of all sinners. I mean, think about that for a moment or two. And so beyond the fact that they don't understand the right use of God's law, they only use it, if you would, as a means to just dazzle the crowds. Dazzle the crowds with their works or words about their works that are done or works that are coming. And of course, to point out the bad people, of which they would never find themselves in that group. Therefore, if your Bible is open, looking at the end of, of chapter 1, those list of sins which excites God's wrath, and if you look carefully, you, you, you see almost all of these are not so much behavior as attitudes of the heart. Greed, envy, malice, insolent, overbearing, right, in conduct and speech, audacious, rude. By the way, the Greek word uh, hubris, meaning arrogant, and verse 31, heartless, meaning you're not able to put yourself in any other people's shoes. Ruthless, meaning you're exploitive. You, you unfairly manipulate and scheme towards others. So Paul starts this chapter by saying, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at every point you judge the other of the things I just said, you're condemning yourself because you do the same thing. So it's almost as if Paul turns and says, Hey, you out there listening, and you're just sitting in judgment. Let's be honest. You do the same thing. And loved ones, Paul knows at this time the letter was going to be read out loud to the Roman church. And in that church, there would be Gentile Christian converts and there would be Jewish Christian converts who could have been sitting out there thinking, oh yeah, those pagans and that, those orgies and, and that bowing down to idols and all that you know, heartless stuff, that's terrible. And in that, Paul says, you are sitting and condemning and you're passing judgment on others. If you like, and this is so important, in that moment, and, and a moment is all that was needed to sin to be judged, right? Think of the garden in Eden. That happened in just one moment. One moment, one bite, it's done. That's God. In that moment of judging others, what they're doing essentially is conjuring up a crossless Christianity. Forgetting that in that moment, People are saved by grace, forgetting it is impossible for anyone to be guiltless before God unless they are justified by faith in Christ and not by being good. And a crossless Christianity, that's sub-Christian. It's far less than the Christian message. <clears throat> you have to understand, and I think we're going to understand this as a congregation, the central message of, of, of Christianity is Jesus. The central message of a crossless Christianity is do better, try harder, live according to God's rules, and, and, and those bad people either get rid of them or get after them, one or the other. And God would be saying in heaven, hey guys, 
let's just be honest, if you get rid of all the bad people, then who would be left? Now, the Bible does teach morality. It's just that the morality that the Bible teaches always is attached to the cross. And our morality never makes a person right with God because the only morality which, which saves and God accepts is the morality of Christ given to us, thank God, day one of our conversion. So no one should think we reject the importance of good works and obeying the law, the moral law. Just as the earth doesn't bear fruit until it receives the rain from heaven as a gift. So when we receive the righteousness of Jesus as a gift, we consequently, we live a good life naturally out of gratitude now. But if we try to earn our righteousness by doing many good deeds, we actually do nothing. We neither please God through our works, nor do we, do we honor the purpose of which God gave the law. But if we receive Jesus and his righteousness, then we can use the law not for our salvation and not, you know, to throw around at others, but we use the law for the honor of Christ and the glory of Christ to show lovingly that we are grateful for his sacrifice on the cross. Loved ones, that is fundamental. That is basic. That's why we can't, Romans 2, 1 through 3, that's why we can't judge. So sometimes you hear people say, well, you know, doctrine divides. Yes, it does. It divides truth from error. Therefore, chapter 2 says, okay, listen, yes, you're religious. Yes, you know, you're trying to obey the Ten Commandments, at least externally. And externally, it looks like you're complying with all the rules and the regulations. But though you may not have, you know, idols of the hand, you have idols of the heart. You might not have an idol that you can pick up and, and move around, but you have idols in your heart. You, you know how to play the external game. I mean, this is the Pharisees. They were wonderful at it. You know how to play that game, but God knows your heart. You could say, like, you know how to win the room, but God knows your heart. Okay, so you cannot stand certain sins, and you get all fired up about certain sins. But there are other things you do. This is Paul saying there are other things that you do. There are other things that you worship. Therefore, you stand condemned before God. So the first group in chapter 1, they disassociate the, themselves from God completely. They see all the good in the law, and they're like, who cares? Who cares? But the second group in chapter 2, they deliberately identify themselves with God's decrees. You're like, we care. We care, but then they set themselves up in a place that they do not belong. They set themselves up as judges over the first group, only to find that God says to them squarely, you are being judged because you know you do the same thing. So you, you, know, you may work yourself up into a state of self-righteous indignation over the bad behavior of, of others, but God's word says you're doing the very same thing. And the, in fact, the very same thing that we do is pampered and sheltered. We say, well, you know, it's not as serious as, and that is very slick, but it's also very sick. It's dishonest. And do you see that little word favoritism at the end of verse 11 of chapter 2? The word that God won't do, we do for ourselves, and we shouldn't. And remember, we said this a couple of weeks ago, but it bears repeating. If our faculties are so well developed, if our you know, moral radar is so developed 
that we can detect and declare the moral failures of others, how in the world can we plead ignorance over our own moral issues? In other words, why do you sin? If you're so good at spotting out the sins of others, why do you sin? When, verse 1, do you see it there, chapter 2? God says through Paul's pen, you do the same thing. Verse 2, you try to play God and judge. Verse 3, do you, we think we'll escape God's judgment? It's a rhetorical question. Absolutely not. Loved ones, religion, as clever as it is and as impressive as it is, just feeds the flesh. It always fails. It will fail the world. It fails our own hearts. It does divide. And even if religion, which is kind of common this day, this day, even if religion just uses God's name or Jesus' name, you know, like for marketing purposes. Oh, yes, we're Christian. Yes, we believe in Jesus. Yes, the cross. And yes, forgiveness. Yes, yes, yes. While miscalculating the depth of their own sin, the debt they have to pay, and like Jesus said, like whitewashed tombs, outside, okay, I'll give you it, they are on it, on out the outside. Inside their heart is like a graveyard. Their tongues like a viper. Darkness. Now I have to ask the question, is that any of us here? You're just in a constant state of turmoil. I said in my notes, I don't know if this is, you're just ticked off about everything and everyone. You look at the world and how can they do this and why do they do this and why do they do that? And inner pain is really all you know. You have no peace. All your peace is like circumstantial. And it's always based on the things of time. So, so more of that stuff, more peace. More things go my way, more peace. More, more works for Jesus, more peace. Less than you're angry and you're moody and you're grumpy or you're judgmental, or you don't like that feeling, and you start proving yourself by, by doing religious things. I am on fire for Jesus until the inner pain subsides. And then when the pain goes away, my fire goes away. Or being on fire for Jesus means you become the point person for pointing out the sins of others. How can we stand for this? We can't do this. Let's everybody get up and... And, you know, I don't know this to be true, but I'm just thinking about myself. Sometimes if all our speech is judgmental speech, I hope we have something left to say. Do you remember that classic line in Luke 18? Some people who trusted in their own morality and looked down on everyone else. That's not Christianity. That's not a real relationship with God. And once again, the uniqueness of the gospel is striking. But what Paul is saying is, you good people are condemned. You bad people are condemned. You're all lost. You moral people, the immoral people, you're all lost. And it, what it does, that strikes the human mind. Because by nature, what do we do? We want to self-defend. You read all those things in the list like, I don't do that, I don't do that, I don't do that. Check, 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 check. And to say, you know, I'm okay, and I have the truth, and you're all evil, and I'm going to punish you, first of all, that's natural. And second of all, that's how you get death camps and division. That's how you get, I'm the superior race. You're the inferior race. I'm superior, you're inferior. Looking down, calling out. Moralism, this is important. Moralism, I'm okay and you're not okay. That is a lie. Narcissism, we're all okay. You're okay, I'm okay. That's a lie. 
forms of Nazism. Why do I say that? We're a superior race, and we need to get rid of the inferior people. I mean, that can happen at a national level. It could happen at a tribal level. Inf- inferior, let's get rid of them. We're the superior ones. That is a lie. Christianity, nobody's okay. Apart from Jesus, nobody's okay. That's the truth. It's why Jesus came to the earth. That's the message of the Bible. I'm not okay. You're not okay. Please, God, have mercy on me. We're all sinners. We're all lost. Nobody has the right to look down on anybody else. We're all in trouble. We're all alienated from God. No one has the right to be trampling on or exploiting anybody else. We all need Jesus. If you don't know that, if you don't know that, then you don't understand Christianity. You don't understand the gospel. You don't know why Jesus came. You don't really understand the Bible, or you do understand it, and you oppose it. And why would you oppose Jesus? Why? Why would you oppose someone who took the sin of the world in his body on the tree? In judging others, we place the same condemnation. Verse 2, verse 3, Paul says, on ourselves. So in evangelism, how we look at the world, we are, we are really, we're, we're one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. One beggar telling another beggar where to find food. Which is why the judgment Paul speaks of here is according to truth. Right? This is God's judgment, the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And this means that God himself is true, that we are not. In God's judgment, which Paul speaks of here, there's no favoritism ever with God. There is with us, but not with God. His evidence is always real. There's never a mistrial. And even if you think about it, the best legal systems in the world, what they ask for is nothing more than a verdict beyond a reasonable doubt. That's the best legal system. A verdict beyond a reasonable doubt. They say that because human beings are prone to error. God knows no such error. You know what I wanted to do? I have like 10 blue shirts at home. Button-down blue shirts. And and some people say, hey, Joe's in his blue shirt. And then when I'm not wearing a blue shirt, you say, hey, Joe's not wearing a blue shirt. And so I get worried. I want them to know that I have more than one blue shirt. So I thought about bringing all 10 of my blue shirts and say, just, you know, it's like when you go to the doctor and you want to make sure you have clean underwear, that kind of thing. I just want you to know that I'm not wearing the same shirt over and over again. You get it? Because you might be thinking, he's just one shirt, and he just wears that thing over and over. And then like, who? And what is his wife? And what about his parents? And who raised him? So I was protecting a lot of people by almost bringing all the shirts so you can see him. Religion is useless. Gospel, it's beautiful. Second point, final point, God is patient. His judgment is real. So when you get through all that, what we learn that there is a delay of judgment. And that delay is to see the repentance of the sinner. Verse 4, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? And and if you like verse 4, there's a warning. It's like, don't have contempt. The Greek word here is kataphronio, which means don't look down. Don't look down on God's patience. 
Don't underestimate the true value of God's patience towards humanity, a despising. Do not despise God's kindness, tolerance, patience towards who? Towards us. This, so this is not, you know, like, okay, this is not God's easy and he lets us get away with stuff. No, this is God has patience with us. And his patience is not so that we could get away with stuff. His patience is to lead us to repentance. However, when a person despises those attributes of God, despising that this is God's usual modus operandi, this is God's usual way of leading people to repentance, they simply reveal that they are fighting God. You see that in verse 5? Stubborn. A hard heart. You know what that literally means? A heart that is dry. It's almost like a play on words because Jesus said he was a living water. You drink from me once, you'll never be thirsty again. And they're like, they're all dried up because they've never actually drank from Jesus. So look down, please, at verse 4. The riches there, you see that word? The, the word there means an abounding flowing of God's kindness. One of the fruits of the Spirit. An abounding flowing of God's tolerance. This is a temporary divine truce that God has pro- proclaimed graciously over the world. I mean, it could be one and done with God. Justifiably, it could be one and done. But no, it's like, this is a truce. And God's patience, Markothumia, a powerful ruler, this is the idea, who voluntarily holds back vengeance on an enemy or holds back punishment on a criminal. This is the God who waits. So without exception, every person who has ever lived has experienced this kindness and this tolerance and this patience of God. Now on one level, you should think like this. Look, we don't deserve every breath we take, every bite we eat, every home we have, and every bed we lay in. But we have it. So this should tell us not to dare to confuse God's patience with God's acceptance, right? So if you're kind of like a superstitious person with God, so you're like, okay, I must be good with God. All my needs are always met. I have a good amount of money stored up. My plans are on track. I usually get my way in life. Nothing too bad has happened to me. I'm blessed. But you're not converted. You're showing contempt for the riches of his kindness, which is given to lead you to repentance. All those nice things is God's patience with you. The very attributes of God to lead us to repentance. And by the way, this is important. Verse 4 is written in what is called the present active indicative. And it means this. There is a present action of God which is indicative of his behavior towards all humanity. Isn't that beautiful? Kindness and the patience and the tolerance. That's indicative behavior of all humanity that God has towards all humanity. His kindness, his tolerance, his patience with sinners. That's God's nature. And the purpose of it is not to excuse sin, but to convict us of it, to lead us to repentance in order to forgive sin, to change your minds about God, to change your minds about Christ, to change your mind about humanity, and therefore to change your mind about your sin from loving it and hiding it to renouncing it and turning to ask God for forgiveness of it. And by the way, repentance is part and parcel of sound Christian living. So repentance, I understand repentance to faith, but repentance is like daily. 
That's how Christians live. They live within that framework. Daily repentance. However, the delay there, which is given in order for sinners to repent, is met with a resistance there. You see that in verse 5? There's a resistance that leads to judgment. Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Meaning that kind of stubbornness and that kind of unwillingness to repent has only one end. We are storing up wrath on the day of God's wrath. So instead of escaping it or presuming it's you know, justifiably on others, we are overcome by it. And so if you had to sum up verses 4 and 5, it would be something like this. First, it teaches us that no one will get what they deserve immediately. God never executes as quickly as he has a right to. That's the first part of verse 4. If you like, God lets us stay on this earth. He keeps caring, keeps feeding, caring because he wants us to repent. I mean, why else do you think bad, evil people continue on? It's not that they're so smart and they're so clever and they're getting away with stuff. It's God's kindness and God's patience and God's tolerance. That's the first thing. The second thing, it teaches us that the most patient and loving thing he can do is to bring us to repentance. That's the end of verse 4. That's why God is so patient. Third, it means that God, it means that the more God gives us truth and the good things, the greater our responsibility and the more serious our judgment will be if we do not repent. That's verse 5. Fourth, this idea of storing up wrath for the day of wrath in verse 5 shows us that the longer we get God's blessings of life and all that he has been revealing to us about himself and his son without repenting, the longer we do that, the greater the final punishment will be. And what you need to do is thinking up, think of this like of storing up. And if you could, just picture in your mind a, a great huge dam. And the longer the dam holds back the flood and protects you, the higher the water builds so that when that dam breaks, it will be enormous. And loved ones, the day of wrath will be enormous. That, that this, this final judgment on unrepented men and women who have rejected not morality, they have not rejected morality, but they have rejected Jesus Christ because they've rejected the gospel. They have rejected the substitutionary work of Jesus on the cross. They rejected the fact that men and women are absolutely hopeless. And there's only one person on this earth and in the universe and in heaven who, who can rescue them. So this is the picture you should have in your head in our context. So imagine a person who comes to church week by week. Very zealous, very pious, very conservative. But they're not truly converted. Sunday by Sunday, activity after activity, gathering after gathering, they go, they do. And yet, they don't know Jesus Christ. So it's out of fear that they do the Jesus thing, and it's not out of forgiveness. Their fear of losing stuff, or losing health, or losing face, or, you know, they, they like the feeling that they have when they're here. But all that... Sunday by Sunday, if you would, month by month, year by year. It's like, it's like God's kindness and his patience and his tolerance. It's building up and it's building up and it's building up and it's storing up. And then their life is complete. 
but no Savior. And the dam breaks. And on that great day, the wrath comes. You might want to jot this down. Peter speaks of the day of wrath, 2 Peter 3, 7. Paul speaks of it here. He also speaks of it in 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. Jude writes verse 6 of this day as the great day. You can feel the tension of that because in one way it is a great day and the other it's a horrible day. And listen to Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 15. A day of wrath shall be that day, a day of tribulation and distress, a day of calamity and wretchedness, a day of thick darkness and mist and of a whirlwind. Amos 5.18, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord, what it will be to you. The day of that Lord will be darkness, not light. Okay, so then how does God execute his judgment? I hope you're with me. Verse 5, his righteous judgment. You see it there, verse 5b? The answer is what we have done. Now, hold on, right? Is there a contradiction here? Right? Is there... I mean, first of all, let's give Paul some credit, right? Just, you know, 20 verses ago, he said that we're saved apart from the law or anything we can do. He said that. And this is what you need to have in your mind. And by the way, this is why we try to, you know, work through the Bible verse by verse and try to keep things in the context. Because you could see somebody who could whip that out of context and trouble a whole lot of people. So the apparent contradiction of, of the righteous lived by faith just crumbles if we remember that Paul was dealing with good works here as the test on the day of judgment, not good works as the basis for salvation with God. And by the way, it's not our test on others. It's God's test on humanity. So, you know, keep your eyes on your own paper here. Right? Just, just keep your mind on yourself right here. And Paul says, the righteous will be rewarded not on account of their works, but according to their works. Not the balance of works, but the actual rendering of works. So, so please don't think, okay, how much is good? How much good do I need to do to, to be good enough for God? That's not what Paul's doing here. The Christian never, the Christian's goodness never saves them. And the gospel record is complete with that reality. So this might be too simple, but maybe it will help you. Apples on an apple tree. The apples prove that there's life. But they really don't provide life, not for the tree, right? The apples are the test that the tree is alive. Because the roots does what? It pulls up the nourishment. It's the same way. Faith in Christ is the root. And faith in Christ provides new life. Brought from God, a changed life of righteousness which shows the genuineness of a real faith, meaning the grace which pardons people is the grace which provides power to change people. That's always been true. In verses 7 to 10, it elaborates there on verse 6. Do you see it there? Verse 7 and 8, Paul gives what are some of the specifics by God that indicate that a heart is right with God or not. Verse 7, indicating a right, a person is right with God. Persistence in doing good. This is a pattern of life which breeds that genuine desire to live on earth before the eyes of God and not the eyes of man. And I think you know the difference. To be the people of God and live life always with eternity in mind. 
So God's people, Christians, they become comfortable with sacrifice. Jesus was. Self-giving. Jesus. Less is more. Because the glory of God is their concern. The honor which comes from God is their aim. Immortality, meaning the enjoyment of God, that's the desire of their heart. So they're not doing good deeds, you know, to try to like, okay, so if I do this, God will have to do this. That is out of there. And this is not measured by people's declarations and professions. By, you see it there, but by the verse 7. Persistence in doing agathos. And that, that word is the, and this is important, this, that word is the broadest meaning of good in the Greek language. So this good is not like a tribal good, right? Because we all have our list in our head of, of what good is. You know, go to church, do, you know, this, cookies, cards, that's good. No. And this good is far more than, than moral good. But this good, if you would, is worldwide. So, so it's more than morality. It's, it's intellect. Intellectually good. Nobility. Bravery. Sacrificial life. What's the most good I can do in my context for everybody for the glory of God? That's the best meaning of that word good. That's why it's a good which comes from God. This is unhuman good. It's the good that comes from a transformed life. 1 Peter 3 nails this perfectly. Listen to this. This is from the message translation. This is good. Be agreeable. Be sympathetic. Be loving. Be compassionate. Be humble. That goes for all of you. No exceptions. No retaliation. The sharp-tongued sarcasm... No. Instead, bless. That's your job, to bless. You'll be a blessing and also get a blessing. Whoever wants to embrace life and see the day filled up with good, same Greek word, right? That worldwide good, agathos. Here's what you do. Say nothing evil or hurtful. Snub evil. Cultivate good. Run after peace for all your worth. God looks on all this with approval, listening and responding well to and what he's asked. That's good. You see it there, verse 7, furthermore, seek glory, honor, and immortality, meaning these are the qualities that come from life with God. The person who's right with God does not do good deeds for their own sake, for their own sake. He or she wants to become a particular kind of person, one like God. In stark contrast, verse 8, you see it there? Verse 8 gives a test that indicates a person is not right with God. And the one of the words there is self-seeking. It is the tall tale sign. So yesterday, I had some time on my hands, and I was listening to Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History podcast. That's a mouthful. And listen to what Jim Keenan said. He's a religious man, a Christian. Sin in the gospel for Jesus is usually not when people are weak and are trying and struggling, but where people are strong and not bothering. For example, the Good Samaritan parable, the priest and the Levite, they are strong and they're not bothering, but they are self-seeking. Sin is a failure to bother. Sin is a failure to love the way God tells us to. 
Sin fails to love. It means, and you can see it there, it's a self-willed spirit. Self-glorification. Self-satisfaction. Anti-God. Anti-Christ. Even if people use Christ, you know, as a little tool. And of course, nothing... Well, let me say it like this. This kind of lifestyle, it can be pursued through just flat-out immoral life, but it can be pursued, and hence the, the, the Pharisees, it can be pursued by a moral life. Reject the truth and follow evil. Verse 8 means there's an unwillingness to be instructed, an unwillingness to learn from God's truth, a total lack of teachability, a refusal to submit to truth outside of their own convictions and their own heart. That's the essence of self-seeking. Placing their own desires over the command of God. They regard their own self-gratification as more important than the needs of others and the honor of God. In that, they ignore people. They ignore all people who God created and who God cherishes. And their first line of thought is pretty simple. How does this benefit me? Rather than how does this glorify God? And how does this help humanity? In other words, you know this, their life is all about them. A full-blown tra trajectory of themselves. And there's no repentance in that. And therefore, there's no health in them. And by the way, do we understand repentance? This is not repentance. We, repentance is not because of fear of punishment and loss of blessing. That's Esau. He was really sorry about what he did, not because he was really sorry that he sinned, but he was really sorry that he lost his birthright. Repentance is a deep remorse because we have offended God and our heart is broken in our sin because we have offended God. And if there's no repentance, verse 8, wrath and anger. In other words, God's final judgment on them. The final judgment. A public occasion, which there'll be a public verdict, and a public sentence with verifiable evidence to support the judgment brought by God himself. And you can see verses 9 and 10, whether it's a Jew or a Gentile, there will be no favoritism. He won't look at the face. No favoritism by God at the judgment. So we need to stop. We, we, we are saved by faith alone, aren't we? And our faith is a faith that's not alone. It does good. It changes our lives. It brings glory to God. And, and if you hear and this, and you hear this, and if you're, all you're doing is just, you know, comparing the good deeds with the bad deeds, and you know, like your good deeds, like I'm not bad like he is or she is. If that's all you're doing right now, you're very, very wrong. But if you hear this, and you're thanking God for his mercy, and, and you're thanking God for grace in Christ, you are being very, very right. And if you're thanking God that his, his judgment will always be viewed through the lens of the cross, well, you're just like me. So when I went home Friday afternoon, in light of this sermon, this is the truth. I was a little anxious. Not about you, about me. Because I spent some time Friday night repenting and telling God that I find, I find in myself a lot more of the verse 8 stuff than the verse 7 stuff. And I asked for help. 
I ask for help because the standard has always been 100% obedience. And I knew I couldn't do that. So after I asked for help, I thank God for Jesus. And you know what I said? I said, what we sang when Satan tempts me to despair and reminds me of the guilt within, some of which is true. Upward I look and see him there. Jesus. You know the song. You know the song. Grace pardons. And grace gives power to live like Jesus Christ. But always, always, there's two key things about genuine Christian people. We'll say three. One, they know the righteous have to live by faith in Christ. That's, that's true. Two, they know that when faith is real, it'll change them. Three, so they're careful then about the way they look at the world because there's only one lawgiver and there's only one judge. So on that great and terrible day, we're not going to stand before each other, not that way. We're going to stand before God. And what comes out of the mouth of God will be absolutely correct and will be absolutely just. And whatever God decrees, it will be forever. Let's pray. Father, you know the, the weakness and the corruption in our own lives. So we ask for mercy and compassion and forgiveness. You know, there's possibility, God, that there might be people here through the course of this whole week they haven't asked you for forgiveness. We're doing it now together, God. Forgive us of our sins. And please, may the power of the Holy Spirit enable all of us to say yes to what is good and no to what is bad increasingly. And Father, in light of what we just heard, keep pressing on our mind a lively remembrance of that great day in which the Christian will give an account of what we did with what we've been given. And may your wrath on sin which is real, excite us to more and more tell other people about the good news of Jesus, therein loving others exactly how Jesus would love them. We need grace and power to do that, and we thank you that in Jesus and in his gospel there is power available. So we rest in that truth as we end our time together. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Give you peace in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.